Our Bible reading this morning can be found in the Church Bibles on page 1176. It's from Paul's letter to Ephesians, chapter 5. Paul is writing to the Christians in Ephesus about what it means to live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Ephesians, chapter 5 starting to read at verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is part of our uh, series that we are uh, pursuing in the book of Colossians and that reading uh, that we've had in Ephesians is the background uh, spelled out a bit more fully. So we're looking at Colossians chapter 3 verses uh, 18 to 21 and and the highly distilled uh, reference it is. That's not an excuse for me to preach a long sermon but there is a lot here that we need to think about together. We concluded last Sunday, as you have it in Colossians 3, 16 and 17, where as we are given the Bible, that it is to be the source and inspiration of our living, our relating, and indeed our worship. And uh, particularly, as you have it there in uh, Colossians 3.16, and what a great verse it is for Bible Sunday. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another, this mutuality as we interact together, and as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude. 
with gratitude in our hearts to God. And therefore, whatever we do, secular or sacred, in church or at home, at work or in the community, or to resonate with a real sense of authenticity, that we're not one person in one place and a different person in another. And therefore, this, this definition of worship, which you're going to have coming up in front of you now, is the one that we've used before. If you want to print out of it, I'd be happy to provide that. I think that... Uh, and there you are, Archbishop William Temple. Even archbishops in the Church of England can get it right sometimes contrary to what's been happening this past week. Um, it's, it's, it's a lot to take on. I'll just read it out. But what it does is to give a summary, the very essence, the heart of what we try to do, whether that's uh, charismatic or whether it's conservative, whether, whether it's, it's, it's re reformed or whether it's high or low. These are the essential ingredients and however we externalize worship and rightly they should be different and varied, this is the essence of it. This is what it's about. This is a summary um, of worship which I think is quite helpful. We should strive for this when we come together. So it is, and there's the operative word, submission, highly emotive, um, particularly in the home, but we shall look at that in a moment. Submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of the conscience by his holiness. The nourishment of our mind with his truth. The purifying of our imagination by his beauty. And in a very visual video age, how important that is. The opening of the heart to his love. The surrender of our will to his purpose. And all this and more, God willing, is gathered up in adoration. The most selfless emotion our nature is capable of. That is something that is a real blessing to one another as we belong to a community of people who strive to express that. That's our worship. But what we have to do as Christian people is this. We have to make the connection between our worship at church and our relationship at home and our work in the community. A great deal of harm has been uh, brought to the church by glaring contradictions and uh, hypocrisy that have been not only defended but sometimes denied. So the application then of worship, interestingly from the New Testament, is in the home. In what way does my worship today impact the home in which I live? Now, that's why the apostles, with a gospel agenda, turned the world upside down. Because this is always counterculture, always. It's going against the trend of any prevailing society. So the sequence is deliberate. Do you see it? Verses 1 to 8, the Christian and Jesus. That's what we looked at last time, the Christian and Christ. Then verses 9 to 17, the Christian and the local church, how we relate to one another. But we don't live in church. And, and, and we haven't got a private love affair with Jesus. How much of our time is spent in our homes? A great deal, rightly so. So the Christian and his or her family. This is a big issue, I'm sure you, you, you'll agree and the big issue throughout in this series, as 
uh, Colossians comes to a conclusion is this. It's all about relationship. The thing that aches in the heart of all people that we yearn for and long for and grieve when it is strained and broken or indeed in the death of a, of a loved one or in the breakup of a marriage. The thing that we strive for in life is relationship. The quality of relationship is a very precious thing. And the grace of God brings depth and stimulus and enriches our relationships. So just two things that we are to consider this morning. The first is this. I want us to look at Paul's perspective. Perspective is everything, isn't it? What you see, how you perceive things. And here it comes by way of a question. How does the fullness of Christ, or from Ephesians, how does the fullness of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer express itself in the home of a believer? For some people you'd say, what has that got to do with it? From the New Testament, everything, everything. Because it adds authenticity to the gospel that we have embraced. If it's Christians only on Sunday, we're in trouble, aren't we? And the church is in trouble. So, how does the fullness of Christ express itself in our lives as Christians? And then another question. What external evidence is there among the people whom we are closest to, what external evidence is there for this internal life in the Spirit? Now, that's not intended to make anybody feel guilty because we are saved sinners. We know that. Nevertheless, to address this is an important thing within this letter. Constantly in the New Testament, the answer to those questions is twofold. The first is this. Christ will show himself in my character. What I am. What I am is more important to God than what I do. What I do is profoundly influenced by what I am. But this is relationship. How we relate first. So the answer, what is the fullness of Christ? How does it express itself in my life? It will show in my character. Character is what I am. And secondly, Christ will show himself in my relationships. How I relate. Because it's obvious, isn't it? You can't separate what I am and how I relate to people. Now, nobody's perfect. We're not saying that. But we're talking about the active grace of God in our lives, imperfect, with all of the influences of society and family and background and genes and all of those things. Nevertheless, these things ought to be thought through. Christ will show himself in my character, what I am, in my relationships, how I relate, the quality of my relationship with people. If Jesus is my Lord, he will impact both. If he is my Lord, he will impact both. So the perspective... We're thinking about Paul's perspective now in this apostolic Christianity. I think it's quite profound. It's countercultural. It's going against the tide. Western society, let's think about where we are in the big picture for the moment. Western society is dominated by individualism. 
and the, the trends and, and the ad advertisements and, and the media and everything there to encourage that. I, me, my, mine. That's where we're at. That's our society. I don't know if you, those of you who listen to Radio 4, a very courageous uh, Church of England canon spoke about his experience for many years as being a resident uh, chaplain at the crematorium somewhere. I'd, I'm not quite sure where. And he says that he is finding it increasingly tiresome and irritating. And a very courageous man who said, we send people into the flames and they sing in defiance to God, I did it my way. That's the most popular song in crematoriums. And, and this individualism, not you think about it, not just in life, in death, in the face of, of Almighty God, whom one day they will face, and they go and they say, yeah, I did it my way. Now, of course, anybody who says that sort of thing is going to have a lot of trouble, and Radio 4 particularly were quick to criticize him. Why shouldn't people choose their favorite songs and so forth? But for you and I, at our end is a reflection of how we've lived and we say by the grace of God and it can't be more counter-cultural than this by your grace Lord I did it your way your cross your life your blood your love your grace it's all of you and it's nothing to me now, it can't be more counter-cultural than that does God really make a difference in my life in my home, in my living, and in my dying. I did it my way. That's an option. I did it Christ's way. That perception is massive, isn't it? It's powerful. And that's what we're talking about here. The Christian perspective is it's about Jesus in my life. So that's how we started in Colossians 3. Look at verse 1 to 4. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seating at the right hand of God. You would do well to do that long before you die. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. You can't take them with you just in case you forgot. For you died, something, when you came to Christ, something died in you, something was born in you. You died to yourself, you lived to Jesus. Let's try to stay with it, in a sense, in our society for the moment. Because this is such an important issue and there are lots of uh, implications. I want to quote to you from uh, Jonathan Sachs' book called The Politics of Hope. And he's the chief rabbi. Uh, and you probably hear him on Radio 4 and may well have read his books. Um, this is, he's speaking about the, the, the philosophy of individualism, which is our society. And uh, this is what he says. We have our being in relationship with others and we breathe a common air. There can be no articulate I without a coherent we. 
We have replaced a covenant belonging to one another with a contractual using of one another. And from this rampant individualism, all manner of evils follow. Individuals are isolated and lonely. The family no longer serves as the crucible of character. Children roam in a moral wilderness seeking revenge of an older generation who seem to have neglected them. Come Friday night to the recreation ground any time and you'll meet plenty. And I have. We have become a rights society where everyone makes demands and few are willing to give. Choice has become addictive. A true morality has given way to moralizing. And try to take this last sentence on. We suffer from the privatization of morality and the nationalization of responsibility. Who's to blame? Well, politicians, of course. Look at them. Am I? My morality? That's private. And the question he poses then is this. How can we care for people in the community where there is no community? Now, you may agree or disagree with that, but it's a perception of where we are in society. And can you see, here we are in church, and we're thinking about a, con a, a counter-society, one that is very different in its direction, in its values, in its relationships, and everything. And, and it's a mighty and powerful thing. That's the perception. Once we get that right, once we start thinking differently, we start relating and living differently. So a mark, a sign of the indwelling Christ in our lives is this, and am I, am I willing to really face this, that we no longer live for self. I, I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, in this body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, with that perception, let's look at four statements. And uh, for, for what it's worth, I, I looked at the notes on this um, some 15 years ago, and there were four sermons. First sermon, wives submit. There's a lot of mileage there. Second, husbands love. More mileage there. Third, children obey. Even more. And finally, fathers or parents. That would make a, a fascinating um, uh, um, challenge to all of us where we're at at any given time. But there we are, all in one uh, in the next uh, couple of minutes. I wish, you say. Um, so, the, if, if, if our perception is, if our thinking is different now, then the practice must come out of that. The outworking, the, the application. And so on these verses, ch chapter 3, 18 to 21, trying not to uh, uh, flick about too much, we, we'll confine ourselves here. The central place then, not exclusively, but the central place where the Lordship of Christ is worked out more than anywhere else is when you and I go home. When we relate to our children, if we have them, to our uh, parents, if they're still alive, to uh, our husbands and wives or wherever we are at a given time. Well, there it is. Wives. Submit. That's it. 
easy. There's a little caveat to that, isn't it? Just a little thing that just says it. Uh, submit, notice, as is fitting in the Lord. Do you see that? It's not just submit or else. No, no. As is fitting in the Lord. It's not a blank check. It's not license for dictators or harsh husbands. Not so. However, our society, where there's an atmosphere of, of, of yes, chronic individualism and strident feminism, this is a no-no. It's a no-brainer on the part of women particularly. And yet you make the connection. You see, my worship at church, my living at home cannot and must not be separate. And if I am singing with gratitude in my heart to God, then I'm living with gratitude in my heart in the home. And I cultivate a gratitude attitude, which is very attractive, unconsciously, of course. And within that atmosphere, children breathe in this. And when they grow up and when they get married, they are going to see this. And it's a very powerful thing. In an atmosphere of strident feminism and rampant individualism, this is a big ask. Maybe you think I sound more like Nick Griffin than the Archbishop of Canterbury at this point. No way. That's harsh. That's Dickensian. That's unacceptable. And with so much misunderstanding and so much emotional baggage that comes with the statement of this, and sadly, so many husbands who are bad role models, it, is, it may be a hard thing to accept from your perspective. So it might be helpful to put it negatively which will have a bigger impact. What this is not saying, what submission is not, if you like, it, is, it doesn't imply or say inferiority. It actually implies we are the same but different. Thank God that we are different. We are equal but different. And if this isn't something to impose but something that is voluntarily given. Wives, submit to your husbands in the Lord. And I have known some wives who have submitted in the Lord with husbands that have been very demanding. Why would you do that? Well, I would suggest at least for one reason we have a good role model in Jesus. Just turn back a few pages to Philippians. You couldn't find this more sublime, could you? And I could say to you, if it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for you, whether that's in the home or a church or anywhere. Philippians 2.6, this, this marvelous hymn that uh, has been preserved for us. And isn't it interesting, this gratitude attitude you have in verse 5, that's what it should be. And often attitudes are more powerful than actions. This Jesus, who being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, a servant heart, if you like, and being human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
became obedient to death, even death on the cross and so on. That is an example of God submitting to God. It's an example of one human being submitting to another in the marriage bond. It's fitting in the Lord. And interestingly, Christ's attitude to women in his day was a liberating one, was an affirming one. So the bigger picture for all disciples, whether this submission is in the context of husband and wife or much wider, mutual submission brings freedom. And you see the reading that we had uh, with Keith. Look back in Ephesians 5 and verse 21 just very quickly. That this submission is, it finds in a much wider uh, context now. Ephesians 5.21 Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. All of us. All of us. Then, in that particular way, verse 22, Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as to the Lord. And so on. So this isn't something that's demanded, but something that is earned. And I guess much more could be said about that. I, I finished the sermon then, was flicking through this, this book, and if you want a good book on the issue of um, uh, marriage works by, by J. John, it's an excellent read. Um, and in the course of a chapter where he, say, he speaks about how to affair-proof your marriage, he says this. There are a lot of marriages today that break up just at the point where they could mature and deepen. We are taught today, our society, to quit when it hurts. But often it is in times of pain that produce the most growth in a relationship. How true that is. Human relationships too. And as someone who's worked with Relate, I can tell you again and again, in, in the whole secular world, not necessarily Christian marriages, where people have prematurely gone to the courts, and life has become more despairing. But that's our society. That's our society. And this is counter-culture to that society. We're going in a different direction. And then, here's this final quote from this, this excellent book. Watch your thoughts. They become words. Watch your words. They become actions. Watch your actions. They become habits. Watch your habits. They become character. Habits become what you are. Watch your character. It becomes a destiny. And within that destiny, you say, by the grace of God, I did it your way. But moving on very quickly then, uh, wives submit. Husbands love. How, that's the other side of the coin, of course. You see it in, in verse 19. Now, the Christian husband is to love like Christ loved. There's nothing more attractive than that. How did Christ love, you may well ask? Well, sacrificially, self-giving, not self-demanding, voluntarily. I choose in given situations in my relationship to forgo my rights. I'm willing to do that. When did you last consciously do that? That is to love like Christ loved. And I'm willing to put my husband, my wife's relationship first. You see, this kind of love 
is much more demanding than submission. It is much more demanding than the kind of submission that is harsh and legalistic and dictatorial. And interestingly, you see there in, in verse 19, notice another caveat. Yes, wives submit in your husband as is fitting in the Lord. It's a qualification because it's so emotive. Verse 19, husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Domestic violence is a massive issue. Massive issue. Some 70% of manslaughters are domestic. People are not doing very well in the home. What a difference it makes when people genuinely love one another and affirm one another. To forgo my rights for someone else's interests is a very powerful thing. That's what Jesus did. Don't be harsh with what you say and what you do. You see, the fact that a man, the husband, often, not always, but often the main wage earner, can be harsh in the control of money. And that, till the cynics say, till debt us do part. Or, or the whole sexual relationship being harsh, being the stronger sex. You see what Paul is saying? This perspective is a very powerful thing. And it is a mighty witness to a society that is coming apart at the seams. Don't be harsh. Can I put it like this? I hope it does make sense. And this is just to summarize. A husband's love needs to be so irresistible that a wife's submission is inevitable. That's what Paul is saying. And how very different that is in many people's homes and it ought not to be so and we're moving on quickly to children who are to obey children obey and there is a question in the notice sheet in the home group say at what point and of course what if you have uh, unbelieving parents what if you have abusive parents what about obeying is it right always to obey be interesting one to discuss wouldn't it even then you should honour as well. Uh, this afternoon I'm going to visit my 95-year-old father and I still would want to honour him. You, you don't stop being a child when you grow up in terms of relationship. You grow together. You relate past, present and future. And often there's a lot of heartache there. Here's the interesting thing. Looking at verse 20, and perhaps as a church we've got a lot to learn on this. It is that the children in view were obviously quite young and still very impressionable. And yet in this process of growing up, stay with me on this, yet they are addressed as full responsible members of the church. Isn't that interesting? Worthy of receiving instruction, not simply ignored. Have we forgotten about the children? Out of sight, out of mind. Children obey. 
in the Lord. Two obvious extremes, aren't there? First, the danger for parents and doesn't our society encourage just simply to indulge them. Or the other is to be so strict and authoritarian and dictatorial. Both extremes are wrong. Of course children need to be disciplined. Children are blessed with clear boundaries. With, 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 with an uncompromising sense of right and wrong. But by the way, so are parents. We haven't arrived. How often, how often do we lose sight of boundaries in relationships, in behavior, in role model? We shouldn't indulge our children even if we can afford to. With, with, with a crass indulgence that creates problems when they, if they do get married in the future. And we shouldn't crush children so that they are cowed and inhibited. And finally, interestingly here it says fathers, but the implication is parents. Fathers because often they have... Um, the, the headship and the role, but not exclusively. Fathers, parents, and there's the word, encourage. They should be in a home, in an atmosphere that is full of encouragement. Even, even if a child should do something wrong, you say, now, that's not quite right, but if, if you try again, if you do it like this, I have known of some people older than me who have gone through life because of the type of relationship with their parents where they're always defending themselves. And some people who are always overcompensating. Why? Because the, the, the way that they were brought up was never good enough, ever. We are what we are. Of course, there are no perfect parents and you don't bring perfect children into an imperfect world. We know that. Let's be realistic. But nevertheless, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Don't do that. Or parents. You see what it says in verse 21. And it's a very powerful thing. Fathers, don't embitter. Don't give them that legacy to take through life with them. Don't embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Well, what's the opposite? Encourage them. They won't be with you for long anyway. They'll grow up very quickly. Encourage them. You see how very important this is. Yes, children need boundaries. And so do parents. So do parents. Don't crush and inhibit your children as if you know everything and they don't. You know more, you should do, you've lived longer. But you don't know everything. Don't crush. Don't inhibit. But, but foster an atmosphere, a culture of encouragement and emotional value and spiritual growth where they are loved and affirmed for who they are. 
best thing parents can do for their children is to love each other. Not them. First and foremost, you love each other. And out of that security, they will know something of a much deeper love. How do we conclude? Uh, well, I'm not going to conclude with, I've got a quote here from, of all people, Bill Clinton. I know. But what he said was interesting. He said this. The most powerful man in the world then, he said, the most difficult job in the world is not being the president of the United States of America, but being a parent at home. It's not easy. And it's demanding. But this is the perception. Think differently. And this is the practice. The Lordship of Christ is with me when I relate to all of these areas of my life. I say to you that here is a recipe for quality relationships and harmonious living. And who could gainsay that? Because life is short. The home, we conclude, the most potent influence in our lives. If a child lives with criticism, he learns to condemn quickly. If a child lives with hostility, he learns to fight well. If a child lives with ridicule, he learns to be shy and can't look people in the eye. If a child lives with shame, it learns to feel unhealthy guilt. However, if a child lives with tolerance, he learns to be patient. And if a child lives with encouragement, masses of encouragement, he learns to have confidence. And if a child lives with praise, he learns to have appreciation of other people and not just themselves. And if a child lives with fairness, he learns justice. If a child lives with security, he learns to have faith. And if a child lives with approval and affirmation, that child learns to accept him or herself. If a child lives with acceptance and friendship, he learns to find love in the home and in the world. What are we living with? What is our perception? What's our practice of the Lordship of Christ? I hope it is authentic spirituality. An inner confidence born of the Holy Spirit. And an unselfish love that points to someone greater than us. Even Jesus whom we say is our Saviour. And he does make a difference. And we take him with us into our immediate and our wider families.